So we want to talk about fatherhood today. Recently, Helen and I were, were peeking at some different clips from some movies, and there's a movie many of you have seen, Courageous, and it's about the story of four or five different men and their journey with God. But there's a great scene in that that we were watching where one of the guys brings out this list of all the things he wants to do to be a better dad. And one of the guys in the group is looking it over, and he's like, wait a minute, aren't you just going a little too far? Aren't you kind of just kind of being a little too spiritual here? You're, you're a good dad. You're, you're doing a good enough job. And the guy responds by saying, being a father is such an important role that I don't want to just be good enough. I want to be great. And I think I can say on behalf of all the fathers here, we would say the same. Our desire is not just to be a good dad or a good enough dad, but we truly want to be great dads for the sake of our kids, for the sake of our wife, our family, our heritage, and especially to please and honor God. So today we're going to look at some, some different scriptures here. Um, First, we're going to look at biblical expectations, and I'm saying expectations, they're not exactly commands in the Bible, but it's places in the Bible where it talks about dads, and it kind of lays what some expectations for dads are. The first one is that fathers are expected to be compassionate and generous toward their children. A couple places we see this in Psalm 103. It said, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. So it's basically saying the same way we see God is so compassionate toward us, he wants fathers, he doesn't command fathers, but he's, it's an expectation. In the same way the Lord is compassionate to us, we fathers should be compassionate to our, our, our children. And we'd think that that would just be natural, it's just natural for a father to be compassionate to children, but it's, it's not. I find it very interesting with John the Baptist in Luke 1, 16. Listen to what it says. It said, and he, John the Baptist, will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. I think it actually, in one of the verses, says to their children. So by turning people's hearts. John the Baptist was going to turn people's hearts back to the Lord, and by turning hearts back to the Lord, then that would turn fathers' hearts back to their children. So this does, it's something that happens. A father's heart can lose his natural compassion for his children. We can get hardened by sin or the worries of life and stop having that compassion. But it's interesting here, the key is, how, did, how was John the Baptist going to accomplish that? He was going to accomplish it by turning fathers' hearts first back to God. And then our hearts will be and have compassion for our children. So if anyone, if you look at your life and say, oh, yeah, I just don't have the compassion I used to have for my kids, or I want to be more compassionate, then I would encourage you, the Scripture says, turn your heart to God. Go back to God. Ask Him to increase your compassion for Him and in turn for your children. And he desires to do that. That's part of why he sent John and Jesus was to turn our hearts. He is concerned about our love and compassion for our children. 
Then in Deuteronomy 1.31, it says this. There in the desert, this is when they were wandering in the desert, you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son all the way until you reach this place. So it's kind of painting this picture that the Lord carried Israel through this difficult time the same way a father carries his, his child. And I love this picture, just one of real intimacy. I, if you remember some of those pictures in there of fathers holding little kids, you know, holding them up on their shoulder, and then as they get a little bigger, there's a picture of someone holding their child on the back, you know, and I, I love it. I love to see dads holding their kids, and especially like on, on their back. The kids are always smiling, you know, they're standing on their dad's shoulders. They're, the, they're at the height of their dad. Um, one of the things with Teo we used to do was I'd hold them on my shoulders, and I love seeing kids. They're always smiling when they're on the shoulders of their dads, when they're being carried by their dad. There's just that joy there. And God says, it's the way I carried you, so fathers, you should carry your sons. Carry them through the difficult times. Uh, have that kind of intimate relationship. When uh, Kia was born, two weeks before her due date, we traveled down to Hong Kong, and we lived in Mongkok. I don't know if anybody's ever been to Mongkok, and it's considered one of the densest places in the world. I got This is a picture of Mongkok right here. And if you look at the streets, the sidewalks especially, it, it, we got there and we were just overwhelmed. We were like, this is crazy. Every day, it's from eight, 7 in the morning till 11 at night, the sidewalks were like this. And one, one day, Helen said, today is just like yesterday. I thought yesterday was a special day. It was so crowded. Every day is like this. It's like it's December 24th, and everybody is out trying to get their last-minute presents. And it's like that every day. And so... Tail was about two, and so we had his stroller, but in crowds like that with a stroller, people are falling over your stroller all the time. They don't see it. It just didn't work, and so I used to carry Tail around. We got rid of the stroller, and I'd carry him on my shoulders, and it was great. I think in Hong Kong, they don't do that a lot. People were always pointing and laughing at how happy Tail was, and he liked being way up high on his daddy's shoulders, and just that bond between the child and his dad. Until one day, bonk, he hit his head on one of these signs. And they're, they're hollow, you know, with the light on the inside. So the sound was really loud. I thought I'd killed my son. <laughs> and he, he started crying. It was mostly just because of shock. But uh, he got over it, and we were more carefully put him on my shoulders again and carried him. <clears throat> but that's the picture God paints of how fathers and sons, fathers and daughters, how he wants them relating with that kind of, of intimacy that we carry our children. Another expected characteristic, not necessarily commanded, but talked about in the Bible, um, this issue of being compassionate and generous. In Luke 11, a common passage, not really talking about fatherhood. Jesus, Jesus is preaching here um, about his own generosity, says, which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? Well, of course not. No father's going to do that. If you then, though you are evil, or we would say 
in comparison, you're evil. Know how to, in comparison to God, we look evil. Our generosity looks evil compared to God because his generosity is so great. But if then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So God's saying, it's expected. Fathers are expected to be generous to their children in giving of, of gifts. Now, of course, we can go too far and completely spoil our kids, but we are called to be generous and to love making our kids happy and giving them gifts. And then fathers are expected to encourage their children to live godly lives. I love this verse, 1 Thessalonians 2.12. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. So here Paul is saying that the way they dealt with the Thessalonians was that they encouraged them, they comforted them, they urged them to live lives worthy of God. And he said, we dealt with you like a father deals with his child or like a father ought to deal with his child. So he's not commanding these things, but he's saying this is the way fathers ought to be. Uh, Fathers ought to encourage, comfort, and urge. Now, there's not necessarily a direct tie to this idea that he's saying all fathers should do this uh, to urge them to live lives worthy of God, but I think that's fair to, to make that connection. But clearly, as fathers, we should be encouraging, comforting, and urging, and one of the things we should encourage them to do is live a life worthy of God. If we look at the, the Greek words here, the first one, encouraging, para kaleo. The para means from close beside or next to, and then kaleo is to call. So it means to call somebody from up close or beside them or or calling out to them, speaking to them from up close. Then comforting is this, again, para and then maiseomenoi, meaning soothing speaking. So it's soothing talk from close beside. So you're right next to your child giving soothing speech to them. And then lastly, we're to urge them and that's uh, to solemnly charge. In fact, the ESV says that, to charge, to charge your children to, or exhort them to live lives worthy of God. So I think it's interesting. There's this, there's this breadth of meaning here. From, but, but it's all very personal. Sometimes we're, we're exhorting and encouraging. Other times that encouragement is up close and it's soothing. The way that we encourage them to walk uh, give their li- live in lives worthy of the Lord is by giving them soothing talk. They, they are discouraged or they're hurting and they need soothing words in. And other times they need the exhortation, the kick in the pants kind of exhortation and encouragement. So God wants all of these, but they're all personal. Uh, that connection between the parent and the child. And in the same way, it's interesting This is what we see from God. God gives us the example at Jesus' baptism. It says, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And apparently, uh, the people around heard this. So here Jesus is getting ready to begin his ministry. He's beginning his ministry by 
by giving us this example of being baptized. And God publicly in front of people says, this is my son with whom, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So God gives us an example. He speaks these very encouraging words to Jesus. Even though Jesus is the creator of the universe, you think, oh, well, he doesn't need encouragement. God gives us an example that as fathers we should do this. So fathers, I would ask you, you know, when was the last time publicly you said, you know, your son was by your, and maybe introduced him, oh, this is my son, I'm just so proud of the way he is, blah, 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 or something specific, where you have publicly to someone else said how proud, how I'm so pleased with the way he's developing into a godly young man. Have you said those words recently to your sons? And you know, as as I, I'm speaking to fathers, but all the principles we're talking today, I think, would apply just as well to mothers, that these are important biblical concepts. Have you publicly lifted up your son, encouraged him, spoken words for others to hear? And it happened again, not just this one time. Okay, at the transfiguration, Okay, after six days, Jesus took with them Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, led them up to a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Peter, talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. Okay, so here's this incredible experience he gives three of his disciples. And the pinnacle of it, the voice of God comes and they hear it and it says, this is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Exactly the same words that were said at his baptism. But then he adds, listen to him. Listen to him. So to me, that's saying, it's like God saying, he knows what he's talking about. He's capable. He's capable, so listen to him. He's smart. You should listen to him because he has words of wisdom. He's smart. He's got ability. And I think in this same way, we need as fathers and as parents to do this with our children. Periodically, they need us in, in front of others, especially if you can find a situation where they're in front of their friends. Maybe you're having a birthday party. And maybe just before you pray for the meal, you pray over their son or your son, and maybe you just say a few words in front of his peers and say, well, it's my son's 13th birthday, and I just want to say, son, to you, I am so pleased with the godly man that you're developing into. And I see you have so many abilities. You're so good at relating to people, and you're compassionate, um, you're developing great skills and leadership. 
I am so pleased with you. Wow, how do you think your son would feel about that? How would, maybe you didn't get that from your father or mother, but wouldn't every one of us have loved to gotten got that? And God gives us this example. I believe it's an example he gave so that we would follow it. If he did that for his very own son, the son of God, certainly we should do this with our children. Next, so we've looked here at some expectations. These things aren't commanded, but as we look at Scripture, it gives us kind of an insight, a picture, and some of the qualities that were expected of fathers. Now let's look at some of the commands. Okay, one, and this is a doozy, okay? In a dignified manner, elders must manage their homes and make sure their children are obedient. Now this one's a command for elders, but it, and God has these higher standards that he expects from elders. But certainly, he's put this standard there. It's a standard we should all certainly shoot for. So just because it's aimed at elders wouldn't mean that we, we shouldn't take this seriously, that I believe it's for all of us. This should be our standard. This should be our goal. In 1 Timothy 3.4, he says, An elder must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Okay, this line, with all dignity, keeping them submissive. Well, how do we keep them submissive? Well, there's many ways. A big part of that is how we discipline them, right? So God is telling us, you need to discipline your children in a dignified way. Ouch. (laughs) We all, I think, could agree there have been times where we're glad there wasn't a camera around when we were ranting to our children about, do I have to tell you one more time, or going off on a rant and drool is coming down our face, we're so mad, okay? I know we all have had moments when we were not very dignified in disciplining our children or interacting with them. Um, Yeah, it's pretty crazy, the, the things that being a parent, some of these situations will reduce us to. But we're commanded to set our goal to be dignified in the discipline and interaction with our kids. And it goes on then, um, verses 3 and 4 in the NFV say, An elder must manage his own family well, see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. So if you do it with dignity, that's a manner worthy of respect. And then he goes on to say, If anyone doesn't know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? So he's saying this is, an important life skill. This is an important skill for all leaders to have, for for all of us to to shoot for. And I want to point out one other thing. We talked about this in our men's group a while back, this idea. An elder must manage his own family well. You know, in this day and age, often I hear people talking, and I've said this, we say, well, I'm in charge of bringing home the bacon and fixing stuff around the house. My wife, she manages the kids and the kitchen and the meals and their homeschooling. Have you ever heard that term used? My wife, oh, she manages the homeschool. She does the homeschool. She does the the cooking and the meals. Okay? And we have this thought, okay, man's job is bring home the bacon or 
when I first married Helen, I was on in ministry on support, and she was working for Disney, so I used to say, I bring home the bacos, and she brings home the bacon, but um, I tried. I did what I could, uh, but thank God for Disney and their paycheck. <laughs> um, yeah, I bring home the bacon and fix stuff, fix the cars, and do the repairs around the house, and my wife, oh, she manages the homeschooling and the kitchen and whatever. Or we have many different ways. Some husbands do the cooking, whatever. But we talk about that, that. But the Bible says the managing of the household is to be done by the husband. And I think this is important. I've fallen into this trap of just saying, well, that's Helen's deal. This is my deal, and that's her deal. Um, I was tempted for me in China when we were homeschooling our kids to just leave the homeschooling to her, and that was just her deal. But then in reading this verse, I became really convicted that, no, I'm to manage and oversee our household. And so I didn't take over homeschooling, but I began trying to say, well, how is homeschooling going? How's that curriculum going? And trying to go up and sometimes just sit in while she was homeschooling and see how the kids were doing. Then it got to where I started teaching a few of the classes. And I got much more involved because I realized, no, I'm not just to delegate. In some cases, it's fine to delegate, but the husband is still to be overseeing it and managing it. Um, and of course, this is not lording it over his wife. When I started doing this, Helen loved it. She ha was having questions. She was feeling very insecure about homeschooling. Am I teaching my kids right? Are they learning? And every year, they would take a test. She hated it when they take those tests. She said, they're not testing my kids, they're testing me. And if my kids do poorly on the test, that means I'm doing poorly. That was a lot of stress for her. So when I got involved in touching base, well, how's that going? What are the problems you're having? And we could talk about it and, and work through the different issues. That helped a lot. I, it's, I don't see wives saying, oh, get your hands out of my stuff. I'll take care of this. No, or even the... The kitchen, sometimes we're trying to figure out, oh, wow, we're always scrambling to figure out what, we, what we're going to have for meals. Maybe we can kind of do up a, a list or, or what do we want? Sometimes she'd ask, what do you want for lunch? And I'd say, whatever. And then I began realizing, no, she was asking for some help. And if I'd say, oh, well, how about, you know, we have hamburgers and then pizza tomorrow for lunch and lasagna or stir fry or whatever, that was really helpful. To, oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah, I'll write them down and I'll do that. Um, and to be involved in all these aspects. So I'm not, and I'm not meddling here trying to tell you how to run your house. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the point I'm trying to make is husbands, don't delegate something and then just totally forget about it. You're to manage your home. You're the head of the house. So take that seriously. Find out how in these areas that you've, that you've delegated your wife, can you help her and support her? Um, you're not doing it to frustrate her. I think you'll see she'll quickly welcome and you'll figure out, oh, what is the ways that I can help her? And that's part of being a, a good father is managing your house. And then also with our children, helping them. It's, you know, we don't leave the discipline to one parent. The father has to be involved in, in the discipline, but it has to be done with dignity. And I think that's a a good thing to keep thinking of. After you've disciplined your child, if afterwards you can say, yeah, I, I really did that in a dignified way, 
then you can pat yourself on the back and thank the Lord. Because that's not easy. And I know there have been times, I remember when our kids were young especially, there were times I remember coming to Helen and I was just had steam coming out of my ear. And she, I said, you've got to go talk to Teo. He's in his room. I can't go discipline him or I might hurt him. I said, you go talk to him or I, I can't even see that kid right now. You know, just there are times I just got so frustrated, you know, when kids are blatantly rebellious and say, tell them to do something and say, no, I'm not going to do that. What? <laughs> so, and at those times, you know, we're helping each other because at that moment, I could not have disciplined him in a dignified manner. I was completely unable to do that at that moment. Took a few minutes, gathered my senses, calmed down, and then I was able to go back in, sit down and talk about what he did and why the Bible shows that was wrong and what his punishment's going to be. And he'd always say, oh, how many spankings am I going to get? That was always his first question. How many, Dad? <laughs> and I'd think about it for a while and come up with some number. I, don't, I never was very good at that. Um, but, and then spank him. And Tail was always, a, he and Key are so different. Our kids are so often so different. After I'd spank him, oh, he would be angry for 5, 10, 15 minutes. He'd be in his room, and he'd be punching his hand and making noises. And I got to where I just, I just couldn't wait around 15 minutes. So I'd go back to my office, and sure enough, 5 or 10 minutes later, Taylor would come in with his head down. Daddy, I'm sorry. I was wrong. You know, finally, after time, his heart would soften, and he realized what he'd done. And I'd forgive him, and we'd pray, and it was like a miracle. I don't know. It's just crazy when the Holy Spirit convicts our kids of their wrongs, and it is possible to discipline our children in a way that is dignified. We need to make that as, as our goal. Also, um, dads must lovingly, consistently discipline and train their children. Uh, we see this all throughout the scriptures. Proverbs, this very familiar passage. He who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is careful to discipline him. And interesting, we always say, spare the rod and spoil the child. Well, there's nowhere in the Bible that says that. That's, we've kind of convoluted that verse. But it says something very profound here. Whoever spares the rod or whoever doesn't discipline their child hates him. Wow, that's such strong language. But if you love your child, you'll be careful to discipline him. So we've got to discipline our children. So, and it says, you don't discipline your children, it's as if you hate them. Discipline your son, for in that there is hope. Do not be a willing party to his death. Okay, so it's implying here, if you don't discipline your children, you share responsibility for their death or any other trouble they're involved in. I should mention here, there's verses in the Bible that say the parents shall not be punished for the crimes of their children. It's very clear about that. But what it's saying here is they, they do have some responsibility in it. If their children are not well behaved, uh, they have had a role, role in that. And so we need to remember that they're not to be punished for whatever crime their child might do, but we share responsibility in their actions, and we can all see that. Uh, as we parent well, our kids will tend to 
respond well. And when we're parenting poorly, we'll tend to have a lot more problems with our children. Um, but they still have their own free will to make their decisions. Proverbs 3.11, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father the son he delights in. And this one, I guess we should actually put as an expectation. It's um, kind of in between, not exactly a command, but an expectation. Of course, a father will discipline the son he delights in. The son he loves, he will discipline. If he doesn't love his son, he will not discipline him. It's pretty black and white. That's scary to think about that. Wow, if I just let things go and don't discipline my children, the Bible says, God's saying, well, you might as well just hate them. So strong words that make us give pause. Okay, Proverbs 29. Discipline your son and he will give you peace. He will bring delight to your soul. And then also here, no discipline seems pleasant at the time but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So this is so interesting here. The first verse is saying... Discipline your child, uh, and he will give you peace. He will bring delight to your soul. So who gets the peace in the first one? The discipliner will have peace. In the second one, peace for those who have been trained by it. So the one that is disciplined has peace in their life. So by consistently and lovingly discipline our children, gives us peace. And it also gives our children peace. Boy, don't we want that in our homes? Peace? Yes, and we've seen this. When we weren't faithful, in, especially when we were inconsistent in disciplining our kids, one day letting them get away with this, um, not being consistent. Some days they get away with it. Some days we punish them. They would start doing more and more. I've said before, a lot of child psychologists have said, kids are gamblers. Even if they know they can only get away with it one out of ten times, man, they will take the chance. I'm going to go for it. They are bad gamblers, all right? Now, if they can get away with it two times out of ten, man, there's nothing stopping them. So we found time after time we have to work so hard on being consistent. And when we're inconsistent, our kids start acting up more and more, and we start getting frazzled, and we stop enjoying being parents, uh, is it takes all the fun out of it. But we found if we work to be consistent, oh, we return. Uh, it takes a little bit of time, but then all of a sudden the kids start responding and doing what we're asking them to do the first time. And it brought so much more joy back into our lives and into our family. And this is true. When we discipline our children consistently and lovingly, it brings us peace and it brings them peace, just like the Bible says. And when we talk about disciplining, I, I just use the definition, is the use of fun, some form of punishment to discourage sinful behavior and to encourage correct behavior. So that doesn't necessarily mean spanking. It could be a timeout, loss of a certain privilege, many different ways we can discipline our children. Okay. And disciplining young children is very different from disciplining our teenage children. We have to adapt as children adapt. For us, we did something when our kids got to 12. We said, as you're now becoming a young adult. 
And as part of that, you've turned 12, and we are never going to spank you again. That's the end of spanking. Um, and our kids were thrilled about that. <laughs> uh, still, they were disciplined if they did things wrong, but it was different forms uh, of punishment, and we all need to adjust and adapt our methods for the period our kids are in. And on that note, I just want to recommend this resource. It's called Heartfelt Discipline, The Gentle Art of Training and Guiding Your Child by Clay Clarkson. This will be on the, the website when the PowerPoint's posted on there. But I, there's a section, one chapter in this book that is about spanking. Um, Helen and I, the books that we read all advocated spanking, so we spanked our kids and we felt like it worked pretty good, um, and we're not against spanking. Um, now, certainly someone that grew up in an abusive home or has anger problems, yeah, you got to be very careful if you're going to choose that method for spanking your kids, or if you find it's easy for you to fly out of control, yeah, you should be very cautious about um, using spanking for your kids. But the interesting thing that I was helped by this article, after our kids, after they'd already turned 12 and we weren't spanking them anymore, but he makes a very strong case that actually uh, the ro word rod is used in Proverbs, I think, eight times. And as you look at those, um, it's used with the word child. But this word, ch word child in, gr in Hebrew can be translated anything from a small uh, infant to a teenager, basically, or a young, a young man or woman. So it's very difficult to exactly... You know, when it says spare the rod and spoil the child, it doesn't say that. Spare the rod, or whenever it mentions the child, uh, to know what age the child is, is is a difficult thing to translate. But he shows that there are verses, though, like the rod is meant for the back of fools, okay? So we think of spanking using a small stick or switch or uh, some kind of a spatula or something, different things people use on the baby's bottom, but he says it seems like what the Proverbs are teaching was that it was a rod, some kind of like a cane or bamboo stick, and it was put on the back of the child. And as he shows this more, he says it's most likely it was a teenage child. That's how discipline was done then. So he says, he says I'm not against um, spanking and using the rod, but if you want to really be biblical you probably ought to be doing it to your teenager on their back. And he says, I think that's the more what the, the Old Testament view more was. And he says, therefore, I have adopted a more of a grace-based New Testament approach. So he's not against spanking, and he does say if you spank, he advocates doing it on the child's bottom. Um, but I would encourage you to read that. I, I think that was very helpful to me. Before that, I think Helen and I's idea, like many people, uh, was that Spanking is the Christian way to discipline your children. And he just brings up a point that if you're looking, and we usually get that theology from those verses in Proverbs, um, and so looking at it afresh, that we, all these years, we may have been uh, having not the most accurate theology there. So I'd encourage you to look at that. It's a very interesting argument. Again, he's not saying spanking is wrong. He encourages that can be one of the ways you still spank your kids, but he advocates a small switch on their bottom rather than a cane on their back, uh, as he seems to indicate the Old Testament model was more that on the back of a, a misbehaving teenager. So the importance of loving, consistent discipline. Proverbs 22, 
Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Um, now, I know there have been parents that have said, wow, I did train up my child. I taught them the scriptures, but as an adult, they, they've left the faith. And I think one thing to say that is this is the proverb. And proverb, a proverb is a statement that's generally true. So sometimes we take the Proverbs as a promise. Do this and this will happen. No, it's, it's a reporting that when this is done, this generally follows. But our kids, they have a free will to, to choose whether they will follow the Lord or turn from him. But nonetheless, we should train our children in the way they should go. And how, how do we do that? Deuteronomy is a f- famous passage. It says, these commandments I give you today are to be upon your hearts on your hearts. How do you get them in your heart? How do we get these commands on our children's hearts? He says, I like this word impress, you know, making this impression. Impress them on your children. How do you do that? Well, you do it by talking about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. So when do you not talk about them? Never, he's saying. How do you impress these truths so that they stick and are embedded into our children's heart. It's by talking about them all the time. If you're a parent and you're thinking, well, I don't talk to my kids that much about their faith and our faith, but I make sure they go to Sunday school every Sunday. This scripture would say, whoa, you better be careful. That's not the biblical way. That's not the most effective way. But the really effective way is that You're talking about your spiritual life and how it impacts your life all the time. You watch a movie and then afterwards you talk about maybe a certain scene. What do you think about the decision they made there? Was that, you think that's, uh, God would have been, was honored by that decision? Okay. Or today at work, such and such a happened. I mentioned before, Helen and I have said we feel like we had an unfair advantage parenting because in our situation in China, we were able 95% 95% of the time, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, our family sat down and ate together. Um, and then and when we went out, our kids went with us when they were young, and so we'd have our meals together when we were out in the village or wherever we were. Um, but one of the things that was great about that is whatever was happening that day, we talked about it, and we talked about what does the Bible, what does God have to say about this? And we really tried to make this idea that our kids would see our faith is involved in everything that we do, impacts everything that we do. And that's what Deuteronomy 6 here is saying. Don't think just by sending your kids to Crossway Sunday School that they're going to get it. No, it says the best way to, if you want it to get on their hearts and to be impressed there, that happens by you constantly talking about it. It's a lifestyle. And then also Proverbs talks about, above all else, guard your heart. It's the wellspring of life. But that's really what we're looking for. We want these truths. We're not just trying to focus on their behavior. We want to focus on their heart. And are they understanding the gospel message that they're sinners at their core, separated from God, but God in his mercy through Christ paid the penalty for those sins and has brought them back to him and has put his Holy Spirit in them to guide them and to help them. All right, now for this last part, I want to, turn to what I call is an unexpected key or an unexpected command to, to fatherhood. 
And that's this one in Ephesians 6.4. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. I just think, you know, if you told somebody, okay, I have a holy book here. What do you think this holy book is going to say about fatherhood? When it gives the command to fathers, what do you think it's going to tell them? I think people would normally say, oh, it's going to tell them, love your children. Maybe might tell them, don't lie to your children. Don't beat your children. Um, create a happy home environment for them. I actually think one of the last things people would guess would be that when it directly uh, addresses fathers, the Bible says, don't exasperate your children. It just strikes me as unexpected, odd, peculiar. Wow, why does, why does God put that? Why, why is that so important? But it is. It's singled out. Here in Ephesians, when Paul he, he is addressing different people, slaves, children, fathers, he has one thing to tell the fathers. One thing in this whole book that he's going to address the fathers. What does he pick out of that whole bag of things that he could tell fathers? He says, don't exasperate your children. Huh. Well, this must be really important if it's the one thing he picked out. Similar to this, in Colossians, Paul says, Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. I think these verses are very closely linked. When we exasperate our children, it embitters them and they become discouraged. They become frustrated. And so we need to be looking for that as parents. Anytime we're noticing our, our, our children becoming embittered or frustrated, some verses say, um, do not frustrate your children, do not provoke them to anger. So any, that should be a red flag for us as parents. Danger, 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 Will Robinson. Anybody remember that? <laughs> I'm dating myself, I'm sorry. Raise your hand if you know what, what that's from. Okay, good, thank you. I don't feel so old now. Okay, but yes, it should be a danger sign that goes off. When we see our kids getting angry because of something we've done, getting frustrated, becoming bitter because of something we've done, becoming exasperated. Dad! Okay? That should be a red flag. And we say, whoa, this is something important. I need to pay attention to this. Something I'm doing is frustrating, embittering, angering my children. And the Bible says that is a danger sign, that I as a father am not supposed to do that. That Paul said it is really important that you don't do that. All right, so let's look at some of the typical ways that we, we frustrate our children. Okay, not... I'm sorry, not giving young children adequate advance warning. This was one thing when our kids, Teo used to like, his habit was he'd, right before dinner, he'd watch Veggie Tales. And we used to go up to him, dinner, Helen would say, okay, dinner's ready. And I'd go to Teo and say, okay, Teo, turn off the video and come, we're going to watch, we're going to eat dinner. And he would say, what? It's not finished. Five, five more minutes, Dad, or 30 more minutes. No, it's time to eat. The food's hot. Let's eat it hot. And he would cry and be upset. Okay, at the time, <coughs> a red flag didn't go up for me. 
I thought, well, this kid needs to learn some discipline, needs how to say, yes, daddy. You know, there's a, you know, a discipline problem here. Later then, I read a book about this idea of exasperating our children, and it gave this very example. And I remember reading it with Helen. We were like, oh, yeah. And their advice was, go to your children 10 minutes before dinner is ready and say, hey, kids, in 10 minutes, dinner's going to be ready, and you're going to have to turn off your video then, okay? So we did this. I tell Teo 10 minutes before. The first time I do it, I say, Teo, in 10 minutes, mom said dinner's going to be ready. We're going to have to turn off your video, even if you're not at the end of it. He said, okay, Dad. So I came back 10 minutes later. Okay, Teo, time to eat. He got up, turned the video off, and came to the dinner table. And I was floored. I was like, wow, that really worked. Huh. The Bible's right. (laughs) Amazing. All right, not keeping our word. Okay, kids, tomorrow I'm going to take you to the toy store and you can all buy a, a toy as a treat. Or it's, uh, it's in China, we have Children's Day. Tomorrow's Children's Day, I'll take or Or Kia's wanting, your tail's wanting to go look at the dogs at the market and um, try to pick one for a pet. And so I say, okay, I'll take you. But if uh, it goes on and I don't take him, he gets really frustrated. Not when we don't keep our word, okay? Or when we're too busy, too busy to listen to them or too busy to give them the time they need. They often get frustrated by that. And I want to look at a couple slides here real quick. And my purpose is really to overwhelm you with these slides, okay? I found a bunch of articles. One was seven ways we typically uh, exasperate our kids. Another one was 15, 15 ways we typically exasperate our kids. Another was 25 ways we typically exasperate our kids. My point in showing you these is I just want you to see it's easy to exasperate our kids, and, and every kid's different. What exasperates your child may be way different than what exasperates my child, but regardless, the Bible tells us all the same. Don't be exasperated. So I just want to throw some of these so you're aware of different things and you can think about them. Okay? Okay, I mentioned this for us with Teo and Kia. Another thing was sometimes they'd say, oh, Dad, can you come help me with my computer? It's not working. Or, Dad, can you help me with this? And i say, yeah, okay, I'll, yes, I can help you. And then maybe 15 minutes later, I'd go help them. And I noticed they were often frustrated by that. And I, we talked about it, and they said, well, when I say that, Dad, I'm really hoping you'll come right then to help me. Um, and so I saw that, that that frustrated them, so I started making a point of, Okay, when they ask me, I'll go. That, that was a big thing with Teo. He used to be on the floor above us in the playing, and he'd say, Dad, will you come play with me? And I'd say, yeah, yeah, just a minute. A few minutes later, Dad, will you come play with me? Yeah, yeah, just a minute. And one day he said, Dad, you keep saying just a minute, and it's just a minute, just a minute, just a minute. And he started crying. I had exasperated him with my just a minute. And eventually I did go. And so I, I said, okay, I, I don't want to exasperate my kids. So he said, okay, Teo. We went and got a timer. And I'd say, from now on, when you say that, I will say, yes, I'll be there, but I need three minutes to finish what I'm doing. Will that be okay? And he agreed to it. Or I said, there'll be some time. Would that be okay if I do it? And then when my timer goes off, I'll come right away. He said, okay. So we started doing that. And when the timer went off, sometimes I said, oh, I need five minutes or Ten minutes, I can come up. I'll be done with this. Or three minutes, whatever. And he said, set your timer. 
And so I would, and when it went off, I started going up, and I stopped exasperating him. Okay, so when that happens, we need to figure out how do we keep that from happening. All right, when they were young, this. I'll be there in a minute, and then the turning off the video were a couple ways we saw it. But just quickly, I want to go through these just so you get an idea. Some ways, seven ways to exasperate your kids, emphasizing goodness instead of holiness, just caring about their behavior rather than what's going on in their heart, especially when you're in public. All we care about is just behave, do what's right in front of people, okay? Or uh, hypocrisy, we have a double standard. We do, it, we do one thing, but we tell our kids, oh, you've got to do this. Don't be late, but then we're late all the time or whatever it is. That, I mean, that exasperates all of us, doesn't it? Hypocrisy, we're all exasperated by that, okay? Manipulating our kids so that they'll commit their lives to Christ. Um, Overprotecting our kids where they're afraid of everything and not willing to, to, to launch out and try new things. That can uh, frustrate kids, that, that they can't do anything. I had a friend that used to say, I really think it's so easy to say no to our kids. I've made a commitment that I won't say no unless I've really got a really good reason uh, because constantly saying no to our kids will exasperate them as well. Okay, Becoming angry at our kids, that can exasperate them instead of being patient. Not being involved in their lives and remaining aloof. Okay, Being unwilling to ask forgiveness of our kids. We screw up, but we're not willing to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong, will you forgive me? They, they catch that if we're unwilling to ask forgiveness. Then the 15 ways, we'll just look. This one I just want to show you. All 15 of these are discipline. <laughs> I saw that and I laughed. I said, wow. Okay, so inconsistent discipline, excessive discipline, disproportionate discipline, imbalanced discipline, unexplained discipline, public discipline. You need to get discipline right. Pay attention to that one because that can exasperate your kids. Yeah, all these different ways. If we're not focused on their heart, if we're not sharing the gospel with them, reminding them, yes, you're a sinner and you... You sin, you need to ask God to forgive you. And this is what the Bible says that you should have done. Okay? So, or we discipline them for something we've never told them not to do. Or we take our frustrations out on them. Lots of ways. It's easy to frustrate your kids, isn't it? <laughs> to not exasperate them. Now that, that's a, a, a God-sized job that we need the Holy Spirit for. And then the 25 ways that you too can exasperate and frustrate your children right here from Romco on sale today. All these ways of ridiculing them, abusing them, mocking them, disciplining them in front of others, not keeping your promises, not praising or encouraging your child, not making time for them, not listening to their opinion, making the child the center of the home instead of making God the center of your home, displaying anger, habitually disciplining in anger, scolding, being inconsistent with discipline, having double standards, being legalistic, not admitting you're wrong or being willing to forgive, constantly finding fault, practicing favoritism. And the list goes on and on and on. So I just wanted to put these up so you feel like, wow, yeah, there are. This is a big job. I have so many ways, so many weapons in my arsenal if I want to exasperate my children. It's easy. It really is easy. So what, what is the key here? Because every child is different, it is essential. Here, I think these two are really important. It's essential that we're students of our children. We need to study them. What 
frustrates my child. Not what frustrates Stan's kid. What frustrates my kids, okay? I've given you this list so you see what some possibilities are. I mean, I'm uniquely skilled in frustrating my kids, and Stan's uniquely skilled in frustrating his. Um, We need to become students of our children, though, so we see those red flags. Are you noticing it when your kid gets frustrated, angry, embittered, exasperated? And you should, when you see that, then you need to think about it. Go to your spouse. Well, I notice when I do this, our son, really, our daughter, really gets frustrated by that. What should we do? And think of a plan. You need to have a plan. Come up with a plan that will solve it. And many times, run it past your child. They'll tell you if it's a good plan or not. Or Maybe not in every case that's not going to work. But I found many times... If you can kind of make a deal with them. And first of all, start by saying, son, I'm sorry that I frustrate you when I do that. When I say I'm going to take you here and I don't do it, or I keep delaying it, I'm sorry. The Bible says as a father, I'm not supposed to do that. And so I was wrong. That's a sin. Will you forgive me? That's a great place to start. And then say, what do you think? How can I? I don't want to do this to you, son. What can we do? Or propose your solution. And then, here's a doozy, ask our children what we're doing that frustrates them. Periodically, we ought to be asking our kids this. They'll they'll have an answer for us. At least that's been my experience. It doesn't take them too long to tell, oh, oh yeah, Dad, you do this. Okay, and then I tell them, oh, I don't want to do that. I don't want to, I'm sorry. Forgive me, I really don't want to exasperate you. But regularly ask them that. So, we talked about biblical expectations of fathers, and we talked about the commands, and then we talked about this one really unique, unexpected one of not exasperating our kids. We talked about the importance of being compassionate and generous to our kids, encouraging them, using soothing talk, and urging them um, to live lives worthy of God, and then the importance of in a dignified manner managing our homes and in disciplining our children and training them and disciplining them in the way of the Lord. And then especially this idea, when Paul gives one thing he really wants fathers to focus on, don't exasperate your children. Okay. Um, if you have questions, I'd be happy to talk with anyone afterwards. This is a tricky issue. Um, it'll take some experimenting around to, to get it right, but It's important. It's worth looking at. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you that you are such a good father to us, and you set such a good example of how to love. And Lord, we thank you for that example. Thank you for allowing Jesus to come to earth so that we could see with our eyes and see in the scriptures how he lived and how you loved him, how you encouraged him. So, Lord, we just really ask your Holy Spirit would help us not to forget these words, uh, but to really be doers of your word and, and even begin putting into action today, talking about these things, that we could love our children with your kind of love. We thank you so much for the, the wisdom of your word and that it's true, that it works. We just stand in amazement. 
We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.